The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Um, well, Ecclesia, if you were here last week, uh, Pastor Chris introduced a new series that we're going to be in a while about the Celtic way of evangelism and talked a little bit about evangelism. And I was just kind of curious, for those of you who heard that, you don't have to raise your hand or anything, but how did that feel to you? Because if you're anything like me, there is nothing in the world that I want to do less than evangelism. Like there is not a bone in my body that's interested in it. Like it's almost like it's a bad word to me and, and like for good reason. So when I was a kid growing up in Southern Mississippi, um, every Saturday, it seemed like every Saturday, if we weren't playing baseball or soccer or out of the house, like whenever we had a Saturday at home, the same thing would happen every week. Sometimes Saturday morning, there would be this. And you know who it was? Jehovah's Witnesses. Every time. Like it didn't matter. And I was like, this is Saturday. All I want to do is sit and watch reruns of Batman. That was my whole agenda for the day. And you come knocking on the door. And let me tell you, when they come around, like they are ready. Like, have you been around? Have you seen? Have they knocked on your door in the Jehovah's? Like they are dressed to the night. Like if we're going to do evangelism like Jehovah's Witnesses, we have to step up our attire game. That's for sure. And so they would come Saturday morning and knock on the door and my dad would always invite them in the house. (laughs) Now, Now, my dad's a really big guy and a really gregarious. He's never met a stranger. There's never been a room that my father has walked into and people didn't know that he was in the room. Like that's just who he is. And um, when I was a kid, I remember the time that he got baptized and he was a deacon at our church and really into everything. And he would invite these Jehovah's Witnesses into the house. And I don't know about your house, the house that I grew up in when I was a kid, like we had two living rooms and one was like the living room and the other was like the den. And you knew you were in the den because no one ever sat on the furniture or touched anything in the den. And so he brought them in And he would sit on one couch and they would sit on the other, like facing each other. And I think both my dad and the Jehovah's Witnesses just kind of saw these as like battlefield incursions. (laughs) Like there was going to be, something was going to go down. Like my father really thought, um, he took literally like the Bible as his sword. Like it was, something was going to go down. And the conversations would always start fine. And they were talking about the Bible and scripture and we believe this and you believe that and let me show you this. But slowly over time, both the temperature and the volume in the room started to creep up. And so it'd be like a four or five and then it'd be like a seven. Then they would be at a seven for a while, and then my dad would like crank it up to like an eight or a nine. 
and they would crank it up to an eight or a nine and then they'd hit a 10 and my dad has no meter so he always turns it up to 11 and they're going at it in the living room and the next thing I knew like they're yelling at each other about I don't even know what and then at the peak of it all my dad would kick the Jehovah's Witnesses out of the house. Like every Saturday, the Jehovah's Witnesses come in, the Jehovah's Witnesses go out, like clockwork. And so my parents got divorced when I was 15. But about 15 years ago, um, my dad remarried and I performed the wedding ceremony and the woman that he married a Jehovah's Witness. <laughs> so I asked him, you know, early on in their married time, like, like, how's that working? He said, it's great. I save a lot of money on Christmas. Like that was his whole thing. <laughs> but that, that's what evangelism was for me like that was the introduction that it was inherently confrontational and oppositional like even as I got older um, I grew up in uh, my high school and junior high years in Atlanta and we had this really big youth group and we would have these summer mission trips and when I was about 15 or 16 we went to a trip to Nashville and the whole thing was we were working in this inner city area and we were inviting people all day like going around the projects every day, knocking on doors, talking to people, and inviting them to come to a gospel meeting that night. So we'd set up a Bible study and somebody else would like to either follow up or we'd say, hey, you should come to um, this gospel meeting, gospel tent meeting, which I thought was the most ridiculous idea I've ever heard. And like some of you grew up maybe and you've been to a tent meeting outside and like it's a thousand degrees and you're under a tent and there's like one fan and someone thought this was a really good way to tell people about Jesus. Like we're just all going to sweat here together. Like I would get baptized at the end of that just to cool down. <laughs> and so we walked up to this one guy and he's sitting out on his porch. He's kind of leaned back and you know, we're trying to tell him about Jesus and you need to come to this tent meeting and he says well I, I, that sounds good I might send the kids um, but I don't think I can come or like, well, why not so well, you see um, I'm a veteran and we're like thanks I guess I don't know why that means you can't come but he intuited what I intuited like there there was nothing really personal or beautiful about that 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 was just another way to talk about a really good thing in really bad ways. Like a matter of fact, I was in Arkansas last weekend and I'm driving around, a friend of mine showing me around Little Rock and there's this little church on the corner uh, of this exit and they are advertising uh, their gospel tent meeting. And I thought, wow, like they're still doing that. This must be some tradition like that started in the 50s and they just keep doing it. They don't know how to get rid of it. And then I read the fine print and it said third annual gospel tent meeting? You just started this in 2017? <laughs> and so when I hear like evangelism, what I hear 
are really bad ways to talk about a really good thing. And so last week, we introduced the Celtic way of evangelism. And Chris talked a little bit about St. Patrick. And some of you know that story that St. Patrick um, was taken from England to Ireland. He was a slave there and escaped and went back to England, converted to Christianity, and then came back to Ireland. And, and the reason that uh, Ireland was converted to Christianity was because of St. Patrick and his followers that evangelize Ireland. And, and so, like, when we celebrate things like St. Patrick's Day, what we're actually celebrating is that, not the fact that he drove the snakes out of Ireland because there were never any snakes in Ireland. But what's amazing isn't that Ireland was converted, but the way that Ireland was converted. Because St. Patrick's time was really not unlike our own. There was a lot of skepticism about Jesus, and you may be one of those people. Like you look around your world, you look around our world, and you will see the same thing that St. Patrick saw. You will see a church, a Christianity that in far too many ways has kind of aligned itself with power and with politics. And in the world that St. Patrick was in, the church had marginalized women and the poor. And so there was this script that as the church sent people out all over the world to evangelize that they all followed. And this is what everybody was doing. And it consisted of three major moves. The first is that you show up someplace and you preach a Christian message. Like you just tell people whatever you think the Christian message is. And then once you've done that, uh, you invite people to become Christians. Like you've got the information, now you just become a Christian. And then the third move in all of that was to welcome them into the church. And that's what was happening everywhere. That's how they did evangelism. And when you boil all of it down, it comes down to three things. Presentation, decision, and assimilation. Like, here's the information. Make a decision based on the information and then become like us, as if people were just component parts that you stuck together and you put on an assembly line and at the end you get like fully formed Christian. Like, that's the world that they inhabited. And, and the problem with presentation decision and assimilation is that you don't work that way. No one you know works that way. That's not the way human beings function. When you think about the biggest choices, the biggest decisions, the biggest transformations that you've ever made in your life, didn't you take into account everything about your life? All of who you were? W whether this felt right to you? Did it make financial sense? What does this mean for uh, the relationships that I have? What does it mean for the relationships that I don't have? When we move into transformation, when you move into transformation, when you're doing something that significant with your life, you consider all of your life, how it all fits together. Presentation, decision, assimilation. 
You don't work that way. And I learned that you don't work that way, that I don't work that way when I was 10 years old and I went with my mom to a presentation about timeshares. <laughs> now, I don't know what our family situation was, how much money we had or we didn't have. I'm, I'm kind of like a lot of people that you don't know until you grow up that when you were a kid, you were broke, like your family never had any money. It's like, I didn't know we were poor. I thought all my friends were just as broke as I was, so we didn't care. But apparently, if you went to this timeshare presentation, you got to pick one of these three gifts at the end. And I don't know what made my mom want to go, but she went and she took me and my older brother, Richard, and I don't, maybe she needed whatever it was, one of those three gifts that she got to pick and whatever she did, I am confident that she did it because she thought it was going to be good for me and my brother. And so we went to this timeshare um, presentation and we sat down with this room and this guy was there talking about timeshares and he's showing us all of the beautiful destinations that you can choose from. And, and how this money works out over time. And I don't remember how much money it was. I don't even know if I would have appreciated if it was a lot or a little and everything and how all of these timeshares operate. And he did that for 45 minutes. And I thought, wow, timeshare must be the most amazing thing ever. <laughs> and we got to the end of that 45 minutes. And my mom says, you know, um, I don't think we're going to be able to do this right now. I should just pick my three prizes, one of my three prizes. And he gets up and walks out of the room, slams the door behind him, comes back a minute later, he's got this box and plops it on his desk and sits down behind it, arms folded. He's just so mad, so angry that he didn't close the deal. And I remember in that moment making a firm spiritual commitment that I have kept to this day. I will never buy a timeshare. <laughs> now, if you've got one that you want to let me loan, I'm totally cool with that. Because I don't remember much about that day. And I don't remember what the prizes were. But I remember how it felt. I remember how we were treated. And he had done everything that he was supposed to do, what he was probably trained to do, make a presentation, draw people to a decision, get them to join in the community of people who had made a similar decision. And human beings don't work that way. It's, it's the kind of way in the world that makes knocking on someone's door on a Saturday morning make sense but you don't work that way. And so when Patrick and his community went to Ireland to tell people about Jesus, they decided we're not gonna do the presentation decision assimilation thing. We're gonna do it a different way. And what they came up with was fellowship, conversation, and invitation. That we're gonna get to know people engage people where they are. As a matter of fact, as Patrick and his community moved into different towns and villages, they would just look for one person who might not even be receptive to their message, but who is just kind. 
and they would build a relationship there, which meant that they were places for years and years and years, and they would raise up leaders, and then some of them would go on to another town or another village, and some of them would stay. They actually cared about where people lived to walk on a journey with them. And this is the way that Patrick and his followers evangelized a continent. But Patrick didn't just pull that out of the sky. It wasn't like he had a dream one night and everything just came to him and said, oh, that's what we ought to do. That underneath all of it was what Jesus told his disciples, how Jesus sends his disciples into the world. And so Luke 10 is one of the most famous passages, famous chapters in all of Scripture. And you don't have to have been around the church very long. You don't have to know very much about the Bible. Um, You may have never opened a Bible in your entire life, and you know Luke 10, because Luke 10 tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And you know that story. There's a guy who's on the road, and he gets beaten up by robbers, and a couple of religious people come by, and they don't help him. You know that story, because it's one of the most famous chapters in the Bible. But before Jesus tells that story, there's this little event where he sends out 70 disciples to the world. And he says, this is how you behave in the world. This is how I want you to treat other people. This is how I want you to treat yourself. So Luke 10, starting in verse one, this is how that story happens. The Lord then recruited and deployed 70 more disciples. He sent them ahead in teams of two to visit all the towns and settlements between them and Jerusalem. So the first thing that Jesus does is he gathers around these 70 disciples and then he puts them in teams of two. And it's not quite Sith and apprentice, but it's something like that, always at least two, that you go out into the world with someone else, that you go out in a team. And that's really difficult for us because we have a fundamental imagination, probably because of our culture, that we can do everything on our own. And we're very individualistic and we believe in self-determinism. And what that leads to further down the road is that we almost intuit a weakness if we need other people. But what if part of what Jesus is doing is saying, there are some things in life that you're just not enough for, that you need other people. And this happens all through the New Testament that as people leave and start churches and tell people about Jesus, they are always doing it in groups of people. And that's one of the reasons it's really important for you to be a part of a small group, is that not only that you give other people permission to speak into your life, but that you join with other people to speak into the lives of others. And what if you can't do this? What if you can't be a voice and a messenger of Jesus on your own? that it requires other people to be with you. And so when Jesus sends out his 70, the first thing he does is says, you need to lose the lone ranger mentality that is so easy to grab a hold to. I'm sending you out in pairs. Then he starts to give instructions. Jesus says, there's a great harvest waiting in the fields, but there aren't many good workers to harvest it. Pray the harvest master will send out good workers to the fields. It's time for you 70 to go. I'm sending you out armed with vulnerability, like lambs walking into a pack of wolves. Don't bring a wallet. Don't carry a backpack. 
I don't even want you to wear sandals. Walk along barefoot quietly without stopping for small talk. So this is all about posture. Jesus says, when you go out from here, you are armed only with vulnerability. That the way you lead into the world is with vulnerability. And all of those things that have become so important to you, that shield you, your capabilities, your wealth, your possessions, your accomplishments, you won't need those for this. You go with vulnerability. And the reason that many of us get tense or wince when the idea of evangelism comes up is that we have been witness to, or maybe we've been on the short end of people who weaponized evangelism, and it's been about anything but vulnerability. So when I was, um, when I was in college, um, we sent out every spring break this thing called spring break campaigns. And so if you didn't want to go home or go to the beach or go skiing, you could go on these week-long mission trips. And so my last two years, my junior year and my senior year, um, I was the chairman. I was the head of spring break campaigns. And so I spent all year working on these week-long mission trips. And so my junior year, I'd spent so much time working on those mission trips um, that I wanted to go on the easiest one to be on. So I went to San Francisco. And there was also this girl on the trip that I thought was really cute and I wanted to spend time with her because mission trips were Christian mingle before that was a thing. <laughs> and so we end up in San Francisco and we're spending the week there and it just turns out that on that trip, everybody or just about everybody um, could sing or had some sort of singing ability. And so the guy that we were working with and was leading us around, like he would just have us go places and part of what we would do um, is sing. So late on in the week, he decides um, we're going to go, we're going to leave San Francisco and we're going to go um, to UC Berkeley. And so he walks us all around and kind of tours the campus and we're out there. And then he takes us to this quad place and he just stops us right in the middle of it and goes, sing. And so like I was raised in Churches of Christ, so we don't need instruments, we don't need crutches, we can do that anytime we want to. And so we just did it. And it was the most awkward, embarrassing, it was just as awkward and embarrassing as you think it might be. And it was horrible and it was over relatively quickly. I still have some scars from it, but me and my therapist are working through it. And then he said, well, here's what you need to do. Um, just go and talk to people. And we did that. I started looking around that little quad and like over here, like there were people from the nation of Islam. And over in this corner, uh, there were folks from this like really far, like right wing political group. And over there, there was this left wing political group. And like over in this corner, there were like a mix of like Hare Krishnas and Buddhists and Hindus all there together. And they were like talking to each other, but from far away, and they were arguing about everything, and it dawned on me, like in that minute, like, oh, 
this is the place people come to fight. And for many of us and many of our friends, like that's what evangelism is. It's a place to fight. And Jesus says, when you go out, you don't go out with power. You go out with vulnerability. And so in the last seven or 10 years, a lot of really smart, good people have revealed to us the power of vulnerability and leading with vulnerability. But this is something that Jesus was talking about 2,000 years ago, that what draws people to you, what makes you feel whole is to show up being completely yourself, to not puff yourself up and not put yourself down, but to live in a space of authenticity about your brilliance and about your brokenness. And that's what resonates with people. And guess what? This is the very thing you have to offer. Jesus continues. He says, when you enter a house seeking lodging, say, peace on this house. If a child of peace, one who welcomes God's message of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, don't worry. Nothing is wasted. So if you go someplace and there's a child of peace there, pronounce peace on those people. And if not, that's okay. And this is a big hang-up for a lot of us. And this is where we go to war on social media and where we talk behind people's back because we really want everyone in the world to agree with us because on some level we think if people agree with us, that somehow validates who we are. And so we go out burdening other people with validating our decisions. And Jesus says, I'm okay in a way that you're not okay. I'm okay if people reject me. And we don't like that because we're not okay when people reject us. But the word of the Lord is, look, this isn't about you. You just look for people of peace. You look for a child of peace and you proclaim peace. And there's just an imagination that some of us have and maybe we were taught it when we were kids, but that if we don't force feed Jesus to people, then we are somehow ashamed of the gospel. I mean, there's this little teaching of Jesus in Matthew 7 that a lot of people don't really know what to do with because Jesus tells his disciples, he says, you know what? Don't throw your pearls before swine. And that sounds really harsh because we really like our pearls and we really want people to come to know and believe the same things that we do. But it's really not that harsh teaching and Jesus really isn't concerned about your pearls. Jesus is concerned about swine. Because why would you give swine a pearl? Because swine have no use for pearls. 
when it comes to your friends, your family, the people that God puts in your path, why would you do anything to them that wasn't useful for them? And Jesus decenters what we want to say and what we want to do. And he says, when you engage with others, be useful for others. That our motivation is to be useful, not to be powerful and not to win. God cares about the usefulness of what we do. And then Jesus gives them these instructions. He says, stay where you're welcomed. Become part of the family, eating and drinking whatever they give you. You're my workers and you deserve to be cared for. Again, don't go from house to house, but settle down in a town and eat whatever they serve you. Heal the sick and say to the townspeople, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now, this may be my favorite part of Jesus' teaching. And that's no small thing because my wife and I spent every day for a year reading this one story. And so we've read it a lot. And so when I say it's my favorite part, it's my favorite part. Because Jesus says, so eat and drink And basically, Jesus says, do ordinary things. When you come into contact with people of peace, you do ordinary things and proclaim that the kingdom of God has come near. And the kingdom of God is just the New Testament's way of saying that there is a place where God is king, where Jesus is king, and things are done according to the way that he wants them done. And so everybody's got a kingdom, like you've got a kingdom. It may be your purse. It may be your car. It may be your house. You've got a place in your life where everything is done the way that you want it done. Just do ordinary things. And so often we hear powerful and amazing stories about extraordinary things that people have done. And as motivating and inspiring as many of those are, the truth is that there's a part in our hearts that goes, oh, that's great, but I've got a mortgage to pay. And I've got little children and I've got school debt and I've got parents who are sick. And as great as that sounds like, I'm not selling everything and moving someplace and doing this other thing. And it's expiring as, and we feel kind of like left out. And the beauty of this is Jesus says, just do ordinary things. It's actually one of the reasons at Ecclesia that we invite small groups um, to use Astros tickets, our Astros tickets. So about six months ago, um, I met a guy at the gym and he's just one of those guys who's talkative. He knows everybody at the gym and we were sharing and we like to talk about all the things just kind of going on in our lives, which trainers we hate, which classes we love, um, all the women who come and they're in workout clothes, but they never work out. They just sort of sit around and like visit and read the newspaper. And we're talking about the podcasts that we listen to and books that we're reading. 
And he found out because he was, he's a friend of an Ecclesian, um, who, who I was and what I do. And like, we were talking about that a little bit. And I said, well, why don't, why don't, you, uh, why don't you come to an Astros game with, with me sometime? So can I bring some friends? Sure. So he brought two friends and I invited a couple of guys from our small group. And a couple of weeks ago, um, we just all went to an Astros game together. And it was an absolutely horrible night. The Astros got killed. Uh, there was flooding all around town. Like I couldn't get home to the part of town where we live in. So I stayed here. I just slept on one of the couches that night. It was terrible. But a couple of days later, we're talking at the gym. And he goes, hey, um, your church, I, I, might, I think I might come sometime. Oh, that's cool. So a couple of weeks ago, um, he came and joined us over our West Side campus. Just him and his two little kids. And so that was Sunday. And then the next Monday, I saw him at the gym. And he's like really animated. He's like, hey, come, come, sit down, sit down, sit down. And we're sitting down. He's like, hey, um, your church, um, your preaching exceeded expectations. <laughs> I think I'm just going to have that put on my tombstone. Like Sean Palmer exceeded expectations. If you see that, you will know that my children did not do my tombstone because theirs will be like Sean Palmer got kind of close. <laughs> and he says, well, you know, I don't know if I told you this, but um, my wife's Buddhist, so she'll probably never, she'll probably never come. But me, me and my kids, it's like, I think we're going to start I think we're going to start coming over there. Because we were talking about podcasts and books and baseball and Premier League soccer just three months ago. It's like ordinary things. And the, the, the word of Jesus, the message of Jesus is that the practice of ordinary things creates the space for extraordinary healing and conversation. And I don't know about you, what your life is like. Maybe in your life, you exceed expectations. But for me, most of the time, I feel like an ordinary thing that my life is really ordinary and it's always been ordinary and it'll always be ordinary. But the word of the Lord is that God transforms the world through ordinary things. And this is why when Jesus comes, he teaches us through ordinary things water and wine, bread and dirt. I love in 2 Corinthians when the Apostle Paul says that we have this treasure. We have this treasure in jars of clay, this everyday, ordinary thing. And my prayer for you is that you will see your life 
filled with the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, even in the midst of it being so ordinary. And this is how God changes the world. Let me pray for you. God, will you give us a sense of how you transform the everyday and ordinary pieces of our lives for your glory and the courage to step into each and every day with you as you make all things new. And we ask it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.